0: again we will be again in the letter of jude so if you will turn in your bibles there uh if you're a guest this morning um this is your first time to cross point this is your first time to open up a bible uh let me just begin by warning you we are in a very odd chapter in book of the bible and we're about to see that this week uh so, just to warn you, and also, to caveat, uh, this week you really don't need to fall asleep on me. Um, like you don't really need to fall asleep any week, like, when God's Word is preached, but definitely this week, because there are some odd things, weird things going on in this text, so you might come to, like, in the middle of it, hear me say something really crazy, fall back asleep, and then I might not have a job next week, so, you know, for the, you know, the benefit of me and my family... Try to stay cognizant the whole time and, and, and aware, because there are some difficult things going on in this text that need some explanation. And, and, um, and you know, again, these oddities, these weird things, they, they may sound weird to us as 21st century readers, but they're not odd or weird to Jude's audience. But despite all the, those things, that Jude's message is still the same. And despite however language or whatever he's referring to, those things, that the message is still the same, and we still need to hear that. And so, if you can, just try and stay with me on this. Um, So just to kind of review, if you weren't here last week, is last week we looked at uh, Jude, as he referred to us, our position in Christ is the called, the loved, and the kept people of God. And that because this is our position in Christ, the called, loved, and the kept, we now have this responsibility uh, to pursue holiness. And the way that we pursue holiness in this life is by contending for the faith. Uh, and so there's this kind of balance where, uh, you know, we know our position in Christ, yet we're still to actively work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul says in Philippians. And it's so interesting, I, I would, I think it's providential in how this has worked out, is that uh, living the life study, the, the study that we're going through on Sunday mornings, like has so much overlap with the book of Jude. Because in the living the life study, what we're learning about is that God's spirit works in us to spiral up into more and more Christ-likeness. But there's also another part of that that we're supposed to actively participate in spiraling up into Christlikeness. So God is working in us, and then we're also working as well, and so it's this this relationship of God's Spirit working in us, and we also participating in this as well. And that's exactly what Jude's saying. He's saying the same thing. He said, you're kept, loved, and called, therefore you contend. And so it's just, it's providential that these two studies have kind of intermingled and overlapped in a sense. And so as we learned last week of our position and what we're supposed to do is that now we're going to get into the bulk of his main argument and looking at just the future and judgment and difficult things like hell and punishment. And so I'm going to read the text for us and then we'll pray. Starting in verse 5, we'll read through 16. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, this next verse, I'm just going to go ahead and warn you, is the verse you really don't need to fall asleep on when I begin talking about it. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. I know after today's sermon, that will be many of your life verses. You know, uh, So, just stay with me when we get there. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are the hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead, uprooted wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Let us pray. God, we need your help. Lord, by your Spirit indwelling in us, help us to understand the text of Scripture because we know we need it, that every word in this book is written for our benefit so that we may grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So God, help us. We want to understand. We want to know. We want to look more like Jesus father we love you amen let's do a um a movie quiz for a second tell me where this line comes from and i'll try and say it in the guy's accent as well brothers what we do in this life echoes in eternity Hey want know gladiator. gladiator good some people said bla- pretty far yeah what an iconic line for maximus and gladiator right like, brothers, what we do in this life echoes in eternity. And uh, what, what Maximus is trying to convey is that the way that you live in this life has ramifications for the future. And this is exactly the opposite of what the false teachers are saying in Jude's church. They're saying, no, how you live in this life has no ramifications for the future. If they were going to change, like Maximus' quote, they would say, brothers, what you do in this life Stay silent in eternity. I don't, I don't really know how they would change, but it has no impact on eternity. That's what the false teachers in Jude's church are saying. It doesn't matter how you live. There's no future judgment. There's nothing's going to happen to you. God's loving and forgiving. It's okay. Do what you want. And this is exactly the error that Jude's trying to come against and debunk, is that there is ramifications. There is judgment for sin and for Sinful living, wicked, corrupt living. And the way that he does this, that we'll see in verses 5 through 16, is that he pulls past events, past characters, situations from Israel's history to, to, you know, put it, display it for them to show, like, this is how God acted in the past. If God acted this way in the past, why would you ever think that he would act differently in the future? God is consistent in his character and his nature. If he judged in the past, he will certainly judge you in the future. And so as we walk through 5 through 16, uh, consider like walking through like a museum of Israel's, uh, Israel's past. And Jude's kind of our tour guide through all this that he's going to bring up people. He's going to show, oh, look, there's Cain over there. And look, there's Sodom and Gomorrah over there. And look, there's Korah and their rebellion. And look, there's Balaam over there. He's going to show us all these different people and events and situations. And so that at the end of it, he can say, like, look at all these things. And look what the common denominator was. God judged them all for their sin. Don't think that you will be any different from them if you continue in your wickedness and sin and corruption. And so that's what we're going to kind of work through just very methodically through 5 through 16 is seeing how, that Jude is taking, on, taking us on this kind of historical tour of Israel's past so that it will inform and shape how we think about the future. And not, not even about the future, but how we think about right now as we live. That the future will shape how we live right now. So let's look at this. First point on your outline is this. Is that in 5 through 7, we'll look at the consistent justice of God. There was a, a Spanish American philosopher, poet, essayist uh, by the name of George Santayana. And he's known for this iconic line. You may have heard it, but I'll, I'll just say it. Is that he said this Those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. I'll say it one more time. Those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. This is what, his, uh, what the meaning behind that was, is that people who ignore history say, don't really need history, you know, not really that beneficial or anything like that, is that those are the exact people who repeat the errors of history. He's saying, look, if we ignore history, and ignore the past, what we're doing is we're ignoring the errors that happened in the past. And you know what? you just get caught in a vicious cycle and you continue to do the same things that the people in the past did and the outcome is the same. You do what they did and therefore you get their outcome. And so we need to learn from history because learning from history, learning from the past, it shapes how we live. We don't want to continue that vicious cycle of error. We want to see, oh man, they did this and it turned out like this. We should not do that. We should learn from that. And this is exactly Jude's point. He's like, look at Israel's history. Look at all that's happened. Look at all these evil occurrences that happened, and look how God dealt with them. Learn from that. Learn from history so you don't, you basically don't duplicate their actions. You don't repeat them. Don't get into this vicious cycle. And so Jude's going to dust off Israel's yearbooks and say, like, let's look at the past. Let's look at some examples. And that these are to be kind of a paradigm for you, an example like, hey, look, Let these things warn you. Here's some examples of how God has judged in the past. Take it into consideration. And don't don't act like them. That would be very smart for you. Like, I'm recalling these for a reason. Don't act like them. These events become like the the poster boys or the representations for judgment. So past actions, past events kind of help us to see the future. And, you know, we, we... we talk like this, too, in, in our language. We use events, past events, to kind of uh, describe what's happening now or the future. Let me give you an example. You know, we all say, like, man, it's going to be like World War Three up in here. So you say that because you already assume there's been World War I and World War II, right? And so when you say World War 3 you're saying it's going to be similar or worse than the two wars that came before us, this World War Three. Or you might say, man, that that was as bad as Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Is that you're using past events to describe a destruction, something bad that's happened here. And that's exactly what Jude's doing. He's pulling events from the past and he's saying, like, hey, like, this will be the case if you continue like them. Like, let these be warnings to you. Don't don't continue like them. And so let's. Let's look at a couple of the ones that he brings out, a couple of the events. Look at verse 5. He says, he talks about the wilderness wandering. So now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So, So as you know, that God saved Israel out of Egypt from the wicked Pharaoh and Egyptians. And he saved them, and they were in the wilderness wandering. And there they began to grumble. They began to say man, God, we don't really trust you. We don't really want to listen to this Moses guy. We want to go back to Egypt. They had cucumbers and fish back there. That's what they really said. We want to go back there. And you know what God does? He judges them. And he kills them. A group of them. Because they did not trust God in the wilderness. The God who just saved them out of Egypt. He said, man, it was better back back there in Egypt. And And Jude is bringing up this point for the the false teachers and for the church just to say this, is that this God just saved these people out of Egypt, and then he judged them. If you think that this is not going to happen to you, that, you know what, I'm free from this, That, that, that won't happen to me. You're insane, you're crazy. Is that if he didn't hold back his judgment from the people that he just saved out of Egypt, why would he refrain from punishing you for your wickedness and corruption? He saved the people out of Egypt, and then he judged them. Don't think that you you won't be part of that because you know you're not like them or anything like that. And then he brings up another situation, verse six: the fallen angels. And if you were part of our Genesis study when we were looking through Genesis one through eleven on Sunday mornings is that we got to Genesis chapter 6 and we saw this really weird story of the sons of God that came down and they had sexual relations with women, and this is what Jude is referring to, that story. Uh, And so he says, you know, just like those those angels, or that's what the sons of God are, came down and they had sexual relations, is that they were judged. But we get a couple of details in here that aren't in Genesis 6. He says, they did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He's kept them in ter- eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. We don't really get any of those details in Genesis 6. And so it's understood that um, Jude is actually kind of alluding to another book called 1st Enoch. And before you begin, like, switching through your Bible to find the book of 1st Enoch, uh, just let me tell you, it's not in there. Um, so he actually is alluding to First Enoch, which is a book that, um, that kind of the Jewish people use as like a commentary. It was that kind of like some speculations on different things that have happened in Jewish history. And so he's alluding to that because it's very familiar for his people. It's, the way I can explain it, it's like when you go into Lifeway and you go to the Christian literature section, and you like see all these books, you're like, oh man, Radical, Purpose Driven Life. Like, it's all, like the Fr- book of Enoch is like their Christian literature. It's like, oh man, you know what? I'll allude to this. Everybody knows about this, this book. And so he alludes to that for his people. And just to, let me do a sidebar for a second because we're going to hit this over and over again. So he alludes to the book of First Enoch here in a couple of verses with Moses. He's going to allude to another book that's not in our Bibles called the Testament of Moses. He's going to quote the book of First Enoch later on in the book of Jude. And some of you might be thinking, Can he do that? Can he quote, like, books that aren't in the Bible? Is that okay? Can can we trust the Bible? Is that okay? And let me just tell you, it is okay. And a couple things to consider. Is that when Jude is alluding to these books or quoting these books, he's not saying that these are authoritative. He's not saying they're God-breathed. He's not saying that they're scripture He's just using it for illustrative purposes. Because his people are familiar with that. It's like their Christian literature. And, you know, another point is this, we do this all the time, right? Like, we refer to other books. We refer like, oh, yeah, you know that book I read, that that really illustrates that point. Or this book I read, that really illustrates that point. That's all that Jude's doing. He's just using the familiar books and literature among his people to illustrate that. You know what, these fallen angels that came and did this really corrupt things, God judged them and he put them in eternal chains to keep them there because they left their authority. They defied the structure and order that God had established in this world. They defied that and said, I don't care, I'm going to do what I want. And so God judged them, right, because they went against God's authority. And then the last one in the section is this. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah, and we're all familiar of Genesis 19, where, um, again, another odd story where uh, God sends his messengers, angels, to go to Lot, and the people in the town, Sodom and Gomorrah, want to have sexual relations with them, and basically God cleans house in Sodom and Gomorrah and judges all those people. Because they defied the structures and the order that God had given for sexuality. That said, I don't care, I want to go with my innate, natural desires and do what I want. So we get all these examples from Israel's past of people who are just rebelling and revolting against God and His authority and His structures that He's put in place and the order He's put in place. And they basically said, don't care what God has said. Don't care what He's put in place. We're going to do what we feel like we want to do. Who cares? And what's the common denominator? in all these examples God judged he judged them he punished them and the way that jude says it is that he doesn't use like the same language to describe these punishments he uses different language in each of these scenarios and i think it's to like color the picture of truly the weight and the gravity of god's judgment against sin that so he doesn't he could have just said they were bad, and so God punished them, but he didn't. he used different language to communicate to paint a picture of just the weight of god's judgment, and we do that as well you know when when you i mean I don't know if you grew up like me, but my uh, my mom always threatened to spank me and things like that she didn't threaten she actually she did um, and so but the way that i've noticed that i've taken on is that you threaten your kids, but you don't just put one threat out there. Like, you put threats on top of threats on top of threats, right? Like, you're like, stop crying, I'm going to give you something to cry about. And then you say, um, I'm trying to think of another, another phrase. Um, I, oh, yeah, I brought you into this world, I can take you out of it. Right? You don't just say one threat. you got to, like, put another threat on top of it, and then another threat on top of that, right? It's like, it's not enough just to say one. you got to put three or four on there to really get the point across, right? And that's exactly what Jude's doing. He's like he's using all this different language to describe judgment so to like clearly paint the picture. This is serious. This is serious. Human sin is serious because it is against a holy and sovereign creator. So to sin against that is very serious. And that's why he describes all this all this judgment in different language and ultimately He's telling all this to us is to be an example. It's to be a warning for us. And that is kind of the continued language that will be brought up. Is I'll keep saying warning. is because all these are warnings for us not to, not to continue to repeat these sins. The sins of the false teachers and the sins of the people that, you know, what they did in Israel's history. It's that they're a warning. Stop. Don't do these things. There's, it's like the bridge is out. Don't go that way. It's a warning for us. Remember how God has judged in the past, and don't continue to partake and participate in those things. And so when we get into 8 through 13, after he's talked about kind of what the demise and the the destination of the false teachers would be, now he wants to talk a little bit about the true identity of these people. Who are these false teachers? What are their loves? What are their affections? What, are, what drives them? What motivates them? What's the, kind of the, their intentions behind everything that they do? He's wanting to get to the real identity of these false teachers. Why do they do what they do? What is their purpose? What do they really desire? And so he's going to talk about the conduct and the character of of these false teachers, so that the church can truly know, like, don't be deceived by the smoke screen that they put in front of you, because there is something underneath that, and it's very, very dangerous. So that's the second point, is that the conduct and character of the false teachers. Who are they? And in, in kind of like events, we also use people's names to describe other people, right? Like, people in history have kind of they've become more than a name. Like, they've become like an icon where you use their names to describe people like this. I heard this a lot growing up. Man, you're an Einstein. Um, It's not that funny. Man, you're an Einstein, Wes. Yeah. Heard that a lot. You're a Casanova, Wes. You know. (laughs) Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Uh, But, you know, other names have, like, they have this kind of like, you don't even have to explain it. You just say the name and like, they have things associated with their name. Like, man, that guy's he's a Benedict Arnold, right? You don't even have to say like, what does that mean? What, what does it mean? Traitor. You're disloyal. Or maybe, oh, he, he's just a little Hitler. He's vicious and mean and angry and violent. It's like even names have associations with them to describe a person's conduct, character, integrity, things like that. And that's what, that's what Jude's going to do in 8 through 13. He's going to bring up past characters who have kind of associations with their name because of the conduct and how they con- conducted their lives. And he's going to say, look, these guys in the past, how they conducted themselves, they're just like these false teachers. They take on the same character and conduct. He's going to bring up Cain. He's going to bring up Balaam. He's going to bring up Korah. And all those names for for Jewish people who have read their Old Testament that it sparks fireworks in their heads. Oh, we know what they're associated with. We know that. And so, all this to say, he's bringing up all these past names to show that this this is who these people are. They are morally and spiritually decayed people. In their complete sense of their identity is that they were repeating the sins of the past because they are just evil within, corrupt within, corrupted hearts, spiritually and morally decayed. So let's look at a couple verses to see the true identity and the conduct and the character of these people. Is that he talks about in verse 8, he says, you know, these people are in like manner, they're doing the same things. He says they rely on dreams they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. I want to take that last phrase, blaspheme the glorious ones, because that's really interesting, and that'll, that'll kind of help us understand the really odd verse that's about to come up in verse 9. Is that blaspheme the glorious ones. Glorious ones is uh, another word for an- angels or angelic beings. Um, that's how it's used in the Old Testament. That's how it's used in Second Peter. And it makes best sense... Verse 9 is that these glorious ones are angelic beings. And so, what he's saying is that these false teachers are blaspheming, they're slandering, they're speaking little of, belittling angels. And we don't have any, there's nothing in the text that tells us why they're, you know, belittling angels. Um, but you get this idea that these false teachers feel like they have the authority to speak ill of angelic beings to disparage them and, and, and talk down to them and call them, call them evil and, uh, and think that they can command angels and direct them and give them orders because they have the authority even over angels. Seems like that's what the false teachers are doing. Why, I don't know. But that seems like what they're doing. And that makes best sense of verse 9. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, "The Lord rebuke you." Again, this is this is um, Jude referring, alluding to another piece of his lifeway literature in that time, uh, the Testament of Moses, which is uh, a Jewish elaboration of the death of Moses. And so, in the Testament of Moses, it talks about uh, you know. Who had claim over Moses' body when he died? Did Satan or did, uh, or did God? And Michael the archangel is kind of representative. And so there's this dispute and dialogue going on. But how it connects to verse 8 is this. So Michael and the archangel are disputing over this. Uh, Michael the archangel and the devil are disputing over the body of Moses. And it says that Michael the archangel did not slander the devil But he actually entrusted the Lord to rebuke the devil. Now here's how this connects to verse 8. Is that the false teachers think that they have the authority to say whatever they want to angelic beings. But if Michael the archangel didn't even feel like it was his place to speak to the devil and rebuke the devil, a fallen angel then who are you false teachers to think that you can speak to angels? That's the connection. Is that he refers to the Testament of Moses to show that, you know what, Michael the archangel didn't speak ill or slander the devil, but these false teachers think that they can slander and speak ill of angelic beings however they want. It's, and you might be thinking, well, what's the point, Wes? The point is, they're arrogant. This is their arrogance on display. They think they're higher than they actually are. They think they have authority than what they actually do. They think more of themselves than they actually ought. they're arrogant, so arrogant that they think they have the authority to speak ill and to command and order angels. And then he refers to Cain, and you remember Cain in Jude chapter four or uh, Genesis chapter four where Cain is jealous of his brother and he kills Abel and then he gets banished off to the east and he builds a city. And so these false teachers, they're not murderers. That's not why he's referring to Cain. He's saying just like Cain, these people are evil and corrupting and they're violent and malicious people seeking to devour people and kill them in a spiritual sense is that just like Cain, these people are unloving, they're evil, they're violent, they're malicious, and they want to corrupt others into participating in these same actions. That's how Cain got a city. You can't build a city without people, right? So Cain and his corrupting influence gathers people around him to build a city. And now these false teachers are doing the same. They're corrupting, their influence is corrupting so They're malicious and evil and they corrupt others around them. And then he refers to Balaam. Balaam is in the book of Numbers and Balaam is sent by Balak to go and curse Israel because Israel's getting too big. They're kind of making some waves on the scene in territory sense. And so he sends Balaam over there to curse them. Ultimately, Balaam doesn't curse them. God actually puts a blessing in his mouth. But ultimately, Balaam becomes a prophet for hire. Like he's only going to serve for the for the dollars. He's not going to work for God if money's not involved. He becomes a prophet for hire, and then he leads Israel into idolatry. So he's saying these false prophets, they're greedy, just like Balaam, they're vicious and malicious, just like Cain. And then he brings up Korah's rebellion. If you remember Korah in the book of Numbers again, number 16 that Korah is tired of Moses' authority, the authority that God has set up over over Israel. And so Korah, they stage a uh, a coup, and they're basically saying, look, let's overtake Moses and Aaron. We're tired of their, their authority. Let's just overtake them. And guess what God does? He opens up the earth and swallows them because they defied the authority that's been put up over them. And so he's saying, these false teachers... They're so arrogant, they think they can talk to angels. They're like Cain. They're malicious and violent. They're like Balaam. They only love money. They're greedy. And they're like Korah. They don't care about authority figures, especially the ones that God has set up. And then to kind of finish them off, like to just put the last dagger in the back kind of sense, he strings together this line of metaphors to show this is, this is just who they are. Look at this. He says, verse 12, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts. So hidden reefs, as you know, if you do any boating, like you can't see the reefs on the top of the water, but when your boat hits them, you, you then know that you've, uh, you've hit a reef because it tears up the bottom of the boat. He's saying it's like this. They, they lie hidden underneath. You can't necessarily detect them from the top, but they are going to tear you from within. That's how the false teachers are. They're like shepherds who feed themselves. So shepherds are supposed to t- take care and feed their sheep, but these shepherds are getting really fat while their sheep starve. They care nothing about anyone else, only themselves. They are waterless clouds swept away by the winds. Basically saying like, when you see a cloud, a dark cloud over you, like you expect it to rain. But these false teachers, they're like, they're like uh, rain clouds that you see and they move away. They don't rain. They make empty promises that they can't fulfill. They're liars. They're fruitless trees, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves cannot be controlled. Don't want any control. And so all this is that Jude is trying to paint a very clear, vivid picture of the conduct and character of these false teachers. Look at them. He refers to them as arrogant. He shows how they're like Cain, how they're like Balaam, how they're like Korah. And then he strings all these metaphors together to show this is who they are. This is their real identity. This is how evil they are. This is their intent. This is their purpose. This is what they want to do to you. Like, this is who they are. Do not be deceived by them. This is their moral resume. This is how they act, speak, think, operate, love, interact. All these things. And so ultimately, Jude is going to get across and saying, in verses 14 through 16, if this is their conduct, then this will be their outcome. That's point three. The definite future judgment. We've all heard of Alcatraz, right? So Alcatraz is, uh, was, it, it has shut down since, but was one of the most guarded and known as the... Uh, an inescapable prison. Um, Thirty-six men tried fourteen attempts to uh, to basically escape from Alcatraz, and there have been none, as we know of, that have actually escaped. And so, it was inevitable that if you got sentenced to go to Alcatraz, you were most likely going to die in there. You were not going to get out. There was no way of escape. They had so many safeguards around it that there was no way. It was inevitable that this place is inescapable. And this is the exact point that Jude is making. Is that if this is the conduct of the false teachers, and God has judged this way in the past, then there is no way that they are going to escape the future judgment that is going to come for these false teachers. They will not be able to maneuver or navigate or get away from this. They won't be able to sidestep or flee. God will judge them. And that's what he says in 14 through 16. And again, we see he quotes Enoch to make his point. That these false teachers, because of their conduct and their corruption and their evil, they will not get away. They will not make it out. They will not, their sins will not be swept under the rug. It will not escape from this future judgment. It is inevitable. And just to speak from a personal note for a second, is that personally for Wes McKay, the, the certainty and definiteness of, uh, of a judgment day is one of, the, one of the most persuasive components of Christianity for me. It, it truly is. It is one of the most persuasive components of Christianity because Wes McKay could not, I don't, I don't see how I could live in a world where I knew that terrorists and school shooters and people who exploit and harm the weak and the needy and, and rapists and things like that could go unjudged in this world and in the next. That there is no accountability for them. That they could go throughout this world get through the system, never get caught, die, and nothing ever happened to them. For me, for West K, that would be almost an unbearable world to live in. To know all this chaos is going around, and you know what? These people may get away with it, and there will be no accountability for them in the end. I could not live in that world. And that's what makes Christianity so persuasive to me is that there's a hope that, look, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of of evil and corruption and exploitation, is that, you know what? You may get away with it in this life, but you will stand before a holy God, and guess what? You will not get away with it. You will not. You will not escape it. And for me, that is a hope for me. It's that man people they can be like snakes, and they can get out of everything, but God sees all things, and he will judge all things. It is truly a a reassuring truth for me that sin will not go unpunished, and that it will be brought to an end with swift justice and that's you know from exodus thirty four when when God is saying this to Moses, you know he talks about keeping his steadfast love, but he also He says, but this God will by no means clear the guilty. He will not sweep it under the rug. And so, as we've kind of looked at and just very quickly walked through this, how Judas brought up the past to show how God has dealt with sin in the past and then seen right now presently how the, the false teachers are conducting themselves similar to the people in the past. And then in 14 through 16, see that if God judged this way in the past, he will certainly and definitely judge this way in the future. Is what do we do with this? What do we do with Jude 5 through 16? A couple of principles that I want to leave us with. Is that this may sound so simplistic, but number one is this. Lifestyles have consequences. And we know that experientially, right? Like, lifestyles have consequences. But for us as people who believe in the Bible, who believe God and His character, is that we do have to believe that judgment is real. It is real. And that, again, like I just said, is that God doesn't sweep things under the carpet and forget about them. That you can't contest that God is a loving, kind, merciful, gracious God and not contend that he also is a just God. He is all those things equally at all times. And so lifestyles have consequences. And you know what? In a world uh, that we live in, that is not really a popular um, message. We live in a world that says, kind of do what you want. Like, who's going to hold you accountable? Nobody. And if you're going to judge somebody, like, you're just intolerant. If you're going to make judgments on people, you're just exclusive, and you're a bigot. You know, you're, you're, just, you're just mean. You're, that's hate speech kind of thing. Like, you can't tell people that lifestyles have consequences. Like, no, they don't. But in a world where that is the message, we have to be this pillar of truth that says, look, I have to warn you, your lifestyle does have consequences. And I would be wrong not to warn you of that. That brings me to point number two. The doctrine of hell. And I don't say any of this lightly, but we have to get back a robust theology and understanding of the doctrine of hell. Because, and I I say this from experience and the faults that I've made in this life, is that it does nobody any good for us to soft-pedal belittle diminish and downplay the nature and severity of hell it does us no good as the church is that i know the tendency in christianity and the culture that we live in is like we want to be appealing to all people we want to be really relevant and we want to be accepted I get that. I get that that is the tendency. And so in that, we sideline, neglect, and at times we even deny a doctrine of hell to be all those things. And I would say that's very dangerous. It's because as you read the Bible, you read Jude, you read 2 Peter, you can't get away from the doctrine of hell. You can't get away from judgment. You can't get away from justice. You can't get away from punishment. This is the way that the apostles motivate God's people to holy living. It's the way that they motivate people to do evangelism. It's the way that they encourage people to repent of their sins and trust and faith in Jesus Christ. It's through telling people about the doctrine of hell. And it's not appealing to our culture. And I, I think some of this hesitancy comes from is that we don't want to be this hellfire and brimstone kind of People. I get that. And I know if you're new here, you may feel like, man, this dude is a hellfire and brimstone preacher. Man, what church did I walk into? And, I, I mean, I, you can ask the people around you, like, who know me. I don't think I'm a hellfire and brimstone preacher. Somebody tell me if I am. I mean, but in that hesitancy, I think we swing so far to the other end. It's like, oh, I don't want to be hellfire and brimstone. So I'm not going to talk about hell at all. And both of those are actually kind of damning. Is that we don't need to be people who are hellfire and brimstone where we're guilting people into repent and believe? We're also not the people who are gonna say, God is so loving. Hell, maybe, probably not. Just love God. He's so good to us. He is, he is, he is. He is. I'm not saying that's not true. But he is still very very, very just. And he will by no means clearly guilty. It's a hard message. And I say it with the utmost gravity on, on myself. That we have to get back a robust doctrine of hell. Third is this. Is that future judgment should be life-shaping for us. And you might be like, how should thinking about the future judgment and hell and punishment, like be currently life-shaping. Well, the way the apostles and Jesus do it is like it really is to provoke people to holy living. Like in 2 Peter 3, like he brings up how God is going to uh, basically bring judgment to the earth and, and deal with wickedness. And he says, what kind of people you should be? You should be people who love and are merciful and are kind. He's saying that based on the judgment that is going to come. And so for us, is that the future judgment should be life-shaping for us, where we begin to say, like, how does this inform how I live? And I think it does, like, we need to be more self, like, we we need to evaluate ourselves more. Because as we read through all these sins in 5 through 16, if you were thinking this, well, I'm going to be on the outlook for, uh, for false teachers. If I see any of these sins, I'll know they're a false teacher. I think we've read the passage wrong, in a sense, if that's, if that's the conclusion that we come to. Because here's the thing, is that in, in these sins that we read, you look in the mirror and you may see many of them in you. Arrogance, that's not just for false teachers, it's for us. Greed? <laughs> whew. Greed? It's never good when you're talking about judgment and the mic starts to go out. Like, your heart kind of drops and you're like, oh, man. Oh, man. You're like, I need to self-evaluate right now. Golly. I don't think I'm greedy. I mean, so. (laughs) So if you look at the sins in in Jude 5 through 16, you say, man, that's not me. I'd really ask you to look back at it again and really look into your life and say, and maybe I am arrogant. Maybe I am greedy. Maybe I am unconcerned with people's lives. I'm violent sometimes. I'm malicious. And he even brings up malcontent. Like maybe you in your life are just like, you're never pleased with anything. You're just always kind of grumbling. Could be better. Could have more money. Could have a nice car. If you think that this is just about the false teachers, you've read it wrong. It's about us looking in the mirror and saying, maybe we hold some of these characteristics of the false teachers, and maybe we need to repent because the judgment day is coming. And as 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, is that every man, boy, woman, and girl will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for everything they've done in the body, good and evil. The future judgment should be life-shaping. It all should, should just promote evangelism, promote outreach, remote missions, because we know the judgment day is coming, therefore we want to get the gospel to all people, to all nations, to every tribe, tongue, and language. And last is this, warnings are gracious. They're gracious and they're preserving. Is that God in giving us his word is warning us. He's warning us. It is a very gracious thing that a God of the heavens and the earth warns people of the coming judgment because he, nec- he does not have to. He does not have to at all. He's not obligated to give us anything. But he warns us graciously. And he warns us in order to preserve us. That's the point. That's the point of Jude is making it to the end. And so he gives us warnings to help us make it to the end. And so I would just ask you this morning, are you disregarding the warnings? Are you disregarding the, the things, the resources God has given you to stay on track, to make it to the end? And here's a couple things. Is that we have corporate gatherings on Sunday mornings and we study the Bible? It's a warning. It's a warning not to continue in sin. When we gather together, we're worshiping, we're, you know, we're enjoying one another's fellowship, but we're also, it's saying, hey, let's warn one another. Like, look, God's going to judge one day, and I don't want you to continue in this sin. It's a warning. Reading your Bible every day, it's warning you. Praying every day, it's a warning. These are all the resources that God has given us to help us stay aware of sin. Because it's so deceitful. So do not disregard the warnings that God has given you. Also, I just want to end by this, is that, yeah, we we did discuss a lot of judgment here. But this morning, you really can find salvation from judgment, future judgment of your sins in this Jesus Christ, the Savior. Is that if this scares you, if you're reading through this and this this makes you really nervous, I can tell you how you can find assurance and comfort and refuge. And it's in the person and the work of this Savior, Jesus Christ, who has come to this earth to bear in His body the wrath of God in our place, the judgment of God for us. Is that Jesus is not just a little bobblehead to be put on the shelf and say, look how cute He is, I got Him. He's the Savior who's come to bear the wrath for sinners. And you can find a refuge this morning. If you're worried about the future judgment, if you're concerned, good. Take that as a sign of God's grace to you. But now, find a refuge from God's wrath and God's judgment in His Son, Christ. One of the elders will be up here. You can speak with me or one of our elders after the service. If you want to find refuge this morning, you can find it in Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Help us, God, by Your Spirit working in us. Help us make it to the end, and let us take the future judgment as a warning to live holy lives now. And God, as Jude writes, now to You who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of Your glory, with great joy, to You, our only God and our Savior, through Your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Please join us as we sing.